they come from a dying world. They drift through the universe, pushed on by the solar winds. They adapt, and they survive. The function of all life is survival. Sleep. 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 From deep space, the seed is planted. Sleep. Sleep. Terror grows. Matthew! Matthew! Like the others! Elizabeth, wake up! Get you when you sleep! Sit up! Invasion of the body snatchers. It's got no detail, no character. It's unformed. All of a sudden, they're growing like parasites. Is it contagious? People are being duplicated. How do you know my name? I didn't tell you my name. I can't find anything in here that looks like a body. My side's nosebleed. It looked right at me. You're looking at it as if it was human. It was not human. Now, the classic fear begins to grow. <laughs> We're being cornered. In a modern masterpiece of science fiction. They're barricading the street. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Starring Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Leonard Nimoy. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. From deep space, the seed is planted. Terror grows. Welcome to another episode of the Film and Water Podcast, part of the Fire and Water Network. Uh, I'm your host, of course, Rob Kelly, and joining me this week to talk about one of our favorite films, 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, is the one of the hosts of the Council of Geeks podcast, Nathaniel Wayne. Nathaniel, thank you for doing the show, man. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here, but I, I got to tell you, I'm also a little angry at you now. All right, go ahead. Well... Because I watched the movie again yesterday in preparation for this. As, as much as I love this movie, I haven't watched it in quite a while. Partly because every time I watch it, I have a really bad night's sleep and screwed up dreams. <laughs> and yesterday, I, I watched it middle of the day figuring, okay, it'll be like nine or ten hours from when this movie ends till I go to bed. I'm sure I'll be fine. And yet again, last night, I had a really bad night's sleep and messed up dreams. The you know, about 20 years watching this movie, and it still messes with my head. That's the mark of any good horror movie, man, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, part of the reason uh, Nathaniel's here is that we went back and forth. I mentioned on the show before in the listener feedback f- segment uh, a couple episodes back that Nathaniel threatened me with physical harm uh, <laughs> if I didn't have him on when we do a Ghostbusters episode. And I don't know if we'll ever do a Ghostbusters episode simply because – you know, what is there to say about Ghostbusters? Uh, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's 45 the best minutes, 40, show over. Yeah, I mean, 45 minutes of just guys going, this movie's so awesome. And I just don't, you know, I love that movie. I just don't know what there is much to say about it. Maybe I offered to have him on when they come out with the remake or the reboot or whatever the heck that is. But he, he you seemed uh, dubious about that. Well, the, I, I'll, I'll be happy to talk about it because I'm. I'm very dubious as to whether or not I'll be able to enjoy it. I do still plan to see it. Yes. I'm not boycotting it. Right. But, right. yeah, uh, 
but yeah, I, I'll, and I'll probably want to talk to somebody about it. So, <laughs> all right, well, we'll pencil you in for Ghostbusters. But anyway, uh, I asked Nathaniel to send me a list of movies he, he wanted to talk about, and on that list was the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That is one of my all-time favorite movies. One of my certainly one of my favorite horror movies. So I was like, winner, winner, chicken dinner. That's the one. So that's what we're going to talk about. Um, for anybody who hasn't seen it. Don't listen to this. Go see it because we're going to spoil it. And the movie has a particularly great ending that you should not have two nerds spoil for you. So, uh, yeah, if, absolutely. If you haven't seen it, go see it. But if you have seen it, you know how awesome this movie is. And it is one of those movies that uh, I would say, uh, at the very least, is as good, if not better, than the original. Would you agree with me? Um. I, I would agree with you. I personally prefer much. I actually haven't been able to get through in its entirety any of the other versions of this story. And part of that is because I saw this version first. And mm. the one from the 50s, while quite good, kind of suffers from the problem that a lot of 50s genre films have, which is just 50s style acting. You know, I, I get the same feeling when I go back and watch something, you know, like, uh, like Them. You know, which I watch and go, yeah, that's that's a decent movie for what it is. But, you know, just the way that actors were in 50s movies or or uh, trying to see the thing from another world, the 50s version. It's like I can watch it and go, it's good, but it, it doesn't suck me in just because of the nature of a lot of what was going on with genre filmmaking at the time. Hmm. It's funny that you mentioned the thing, because, of course, the thing was also remade not too many years after Invasion of the Body Snatchers, mm -hmm. and it is one of the other examples of a remake outclassing the original. Uh, there must have been something really in the water in the late 70s, early 80s, because there were a couple of really superb horror remakes that, uh, you know, I, I, most of the time, you know, we're, we're in this remake-happy world right now, and y you like to say, most people say, remake bad movies, don't remake good movies. But in Invasion of the Body Snatchers case, and in also The Thing, those are the exceptions that prove the rule because these are both, you know, really good '50s movies, but I think done much better and more powerfully in in, in the modern versions. Now, this movie, the 1978 version, is directed by Philip Kaufman, who's had a very diverse career. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> and he directed *The Unbearable Lightness of Being*, *The Right Stuff*, uh, *The White Dawn*. I mean, he directed. I think every one of his movies is not like anything like the other ones. I know. He, it's, uh, the other one of his that I know particularly well is Quills, which I really like, but is also a very strange movie. Yeah, and he co-wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, so, I mean, he directed this movie. It stars Donald Sutherland as Matthew Bennell, Brooke Adams as Elizabeth, Elizabeth Driscoll. These are two people that work for the San Francisco Health Department, and uh, it also features Leonard Nimoy, in a non-Spock role, which is fantastic, as a sort of self-help self -help, uh, guru, Dr. David Kibner, Jeff Goldblum, and Veronica Cartwright as a couple, Jack and Nancy Belichick, who are the sort of proto-hippie type of people, and Art Hindle as Dr. Jeffrey Howell, DDS, who is Brooke Adams' husband. And it's set in San Francisco. The movie starts off right at a very weird – I mean, it shows you these alien pods – making their way across space and landing in San Francisco right at the beginning. And it opens with a scene with uh, Robert Duvall, uh, of all people, as a priest. Oh, yeah. Uh, staring at somebody very creepily, and he is not uh, explained why he's there, and he makes no other appearance in the film. Oh, no, it's great. I, I, I wanted to talk about him showing up because it – talking about why that stands out to you 
uh, you know, in your mind is, is part of the overall vibe that I, I think I appreciated more rewatching this yesterday than I ever have, which is how much work this movie does to just put you in a state of unease. Yes. Yep. And, and that, because not only is, is Robert Duvall a priest, he's, he's on a swing set. Yeah, with, He's right, with kids, right. Yeah, yeah. so just, just this image of a priest swinging is weird in the first place. But the other thing is, even though the camera lingers on him and zooms it, I mean, once you know it's Robert Duvall, you spot him immediately. But it, for a lot of people, they find out later, because even though the shot zooms in on him, he's in motion, and the bars of the swing set are kind of getting in your way. But even at the time this came out, you know, people knew who Robert Duvall was. He, you know, he'd done two Godfather movies up to this point. But because it, he never stops moving and it, and it doesn't quite get in close enough, you're left going, I think I know that guy, but I'm not sure. But then he never shows up again. So it's just one of those – one of many little touches that just puts you in the state of – I feel weird. I feel uneasy now because I sh- – like why did that linger there? And mm-hmm. I thought I know that guy, but I don't know if I know that guy. Yeah, well, I mean one of the great details of this film and it goes on – it goes out throughout the movie is – you know, the, it takes place in San Francisco, so there's always crowd scenes, and there is in almost every scene somebody in the background running. Oh yeah, and somebody... no one else is paying attention to them, but they're running in a very frenetic way, and that's just like, what, what's why? Why is that happening? Why? Why is there always somebody running in the background of these movies? As as the regular scenes play out, there's somebody looking like they're in severe distress. There's somebody running or there's there's people standing around and appear to be doing nothing other than watching people mm-hmm. and j- all these things in the background. And there's a lot of work. There's a lot of sound work that I noticed on this latest rewatch. And it's just little tweaks, again, that just put you at unease. Like in um, in Jeffrey's house where uh, where he and Elizabeth live, there's a clock, you know, a pendulum clock, tick-tock, tick-tock. And it, it is louder than I've ever heard a clock hmm. in a movie where the clock was not the center part of the shot. Like you never see this clock, but you hear it constantly. And it's not like deafening. It's not like it drowns out the sound, but it, and I, I have no doubt it was purposeful that that ticking clock is louder in that mix than you would normally have it. Interesting. Yeah. I never thought about that, but you're right. You're right. And yeah, I, you know, it's not like the clock makes this movie, but that, that's just another example of just all these little things that it does to just, just gets under your skin with all these little things that are just uh, just slightly off. The sounds the, you mentioned the sounds, and they were done by Ben Burt from the Star Wars movie. So if you have to have a sound guy, that's the guy to get. I mean, he was about as good as it gets in terms of oh, yeah. sound effects. Yeah, the, the, this was the guy who gave us the the R two D two bleeps and bloops, and yeah, th- this guy this guy knows his way around sound, and they they put him to extremely good use on this movie. You know, it's really funny you say that just because the other day we were um, at a hospital and out in the hall, I heard somebody's phone go off and it was a very particular set of bleeps and bloops. And I went, that's an R2-D2 ringtone. I immediately could tell. <laughs> and I wait and I, I waited a second and then I heard some woman outside say to the guy who has the phone, is that an R2-D2 phone? I thought that's, that's how good Ben Burt was. That a series of bleeps and bloops could be immediately identified as R2-D2. Like, man, this guy. You know, like, that, that seems like something that nobody ever would have thought was that important a job. But when you hear somebody as good as, as he was, you're like, yeah, that is so important. Well, uh, I mean, that, that's the thing about great sound work. You don't notice it. 
but it leaves an impression all the same. I mean, very rarely do you come out of a film going, boy, those sound effects, they really made it because it's one of those things that you don't notice if it's done right. But if yeah. it does right, it, it just – it doesn't leave you. It's, it's something that lingers. You just don't sort of consciously realize it. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned uh, the, the 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 dentist who's Brooke Adams' husband. In the very beginning, I mean, he's already a pod person by the time the movie opens, because well, it's sh- shortly after, shortly, because... I think it's like one scene. Because yeah. the very next scene, you see him putting some dust into a dustpan, and as you sort of will realize later, that is the dust of the original body. Mm-hmm. That he has now taken over. And it's just such an offhanded thing. It's just done kind of like, you know, he looks like a regular person doing a household chore. And you realize, no, that's the, the, this invasion is already well underway at this point. Yeah. Well, and again, just from the one scene that we see of him prior to that, and then, um, you know, the character of Elizabeth wakes up in the morning and there he is dusting. And already you're kind of, even though we barely know these people, we've hardly, you know, this is like, eight minutes into the movie. So we don't really know these characters yet, but you still feel like she does that something's off because the scene where we saw him before he was laid back watching a basketball game, you know, getting, Whoa, yeah, go. And he's got headphones on so that he's not bothering her, but you know, he's this kind of laid back into the game thing. And then we see him button up tight suit, dusting, very neat, very kind of mechanical in his movements. And it's immediately like, that doesn't jibe with the guy I saw a scene ago. Yeah, and he talks about that he has to go out for a meeting, and you're like nine o'clock on a weeknight. What dentist does a you know even? And they do you know suggest very early on that he and his wife Brooke Adams do not have a great relationship because he talks about the game, and she's like, "Well, you seem happy." And he goes, "Oh, I've got something to look forward to." And you're like, "Well, that's kind of a nasty comment to make to your wife." Like, that's yeah. the only reason I'm happy is I go to a sports game, and of course. She is much more uh, in tune with Donald Sutherland's character, who she works with. I mean, he clearly – those two have a very interesting relationship is that they're clearly destined to be romantic partners, but they really seem to like one another. Like I, Sutherland and Adams had a real chemistry that made them interesting to look at as friends. I mean I think if the movie had never suggested that they were romantic partners, it would have not suffered for that. They, have, they, they really seem like people that get along and genuinely like one another. Well, I, I think the cast as a whole, uh, especially so the the core group, which is uh, Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, um, Jeff Goldblum, and Veronica Cartwright, um, and actually I'll even throw Leonard Nimoy in that. Just the way they interact with each other when they speak, you get who everybody is very quickly because the, there is very little exposition in this movie. But there's a whole lot of interaction, and that's how you learn about these people, and you learn about them very quickly as both as individuals and in terms of how they relate to each other just by the way these actors bounce off each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean the cast is uniformly excellent. As I mentioned, Jeff Goldblum and Veronica Cartwright play the sort of proto-hippie couple. They run a kind of mud bath thing. Veronica Cartwright did this movie and Alien back-to-back. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good run. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She – she she had a, a, a either she was picking them or she had a great agent at the time, but and she always kind of plays sort of the similar person in every movie. She's she's the one who gets hysterical kind of quickly, mm-hmm. uh, and you would think that would get tiresome, but for some reason it doesn't. I really enjoy her in in, in all these. I've seen her in leather movies, and it's, I just enjoy seeing her. She's just like I think she's not she's certainly not a typical Hollywood beauty. No. Uh, and and so she just, she has like a just an interesting spin on her 
characterizations that I always enjoy, and I, I'm just I, I love her in Alien, and I love her in this. Well, she's, there's just something about her look. She sells she sells panicky energy very yes. well. Yep. And and it's the kind of thing that in the hands of less skilled actors or, or actors who it's not part of their skill set, it, it would just come across as very phony and very put on. But she she can do that that kind of panicked energy, and it feels genuine. It doesn't feel like an act. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why Philip Kaufman basically gave the final scene to her, but we'll get to that shortly. Oh, yeah. uh, he speaks at her husband, Jeff Goldblum. This is one of his earliest roles. Uh, he's terrific in it. Uh, he plays this sort of nebbishy, failed writer. Uh, and one of the things, he's got a sort of adversarial relationship with Leonard Nimoy's character, who is this very smooth you know, self-help guru who's very successful. And... Um, Something that's I, – I didn't notice this myself until somebody pointed it out, but have you ever seen the movie The Seventh Victim, the Val Luton movie? No, that one I haven't. Okay. That is one of my all-time favorite horror movies, and I think part of the reason I love it so much is that it is sort of like unknown. It's, it's, to me, it's like a little diamond in the rough. Now, in that movie, uh, George Sanders plays a uh, sort of self-help guru author type guy who finds no – gets a lot of enjoyment out of belittling a failed writer played by Hugh Beaumont from Leave it to Beaver, uh, <laughs> b- before Leave it to Beaver. And that is, the, the, that's a character dynamic that goes on at Seventh Victim, and it is virtually repeated here. And it's too much for it to be a coincidence, because the relationship is exactly the same, especially when there is no dynamic in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers like this. This is a completely added thing. So it makes me think that George Kaufman uh, – Philip Kaufman, I'm sorry. Philip Kaufman at some point saw Seventh Victim and decided to – because Seventh Victim has a very paranoid feel to it because it's about a cult. And you don't know who's the member of the cult and who is it, who can be trusted. It. I just can't believe that he didn't borrow it because the relationship is just so unique. And um, again, Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy playing in many ways like kind of a real shitheel. Which was very unusual for Leonard. I mean, for Leonard Nimoy to do much of anything outside of Star Trek was unusual. But he's very, he's very atypical Nimoy here, and he's great. He's really good in this movie. He is. He's he's terrific, and I, I love. Well, I love the way he plays the character, but I also love the way that character is used because he's he's the psychiatrist, and when uh, Elizabeth starts feeling like you know Jeffrey is not. Jeffrey anymore. Something's wrong. Um, and she tells that to Matthew, who's Donald Sutherland's character. Um, and she, and he's like, look, do you want to talk to my friend who's a psychiatrist? And, and so he, the, psychiatry was kind of, it, you know, it wasn't new in the seventies, but it was kind of becoming in vogue a bit more. Right. A lot of the self-help stuff with the, I'm yeah. okay, you're okay. And all that, you know, yeah. Self-actualization stuff. Yeah, so to a certain extent, it was just the time. It made sense to introduce that as a part of the plot. But also what I like about that is ultimately the advice that he's giving under normal circumstances. Because he says, you know, she's not the only person that he's seen who's who's saying these sorts of right, things. Right, who's saying who, right, who, he's hearing over and over again, this, my husband is not my husband. He looks like my husband, but he's not my husband. Yeah, so he's hearing these sorts of things from all sorts of people. And he's giving what under normal circumstances would be the best possible advice. Look. Where he's saying, hey, I know you feel like the world's coming apart. I think I know you feel like everything's you know, closing in around you. Sleep on it. See how you feel in the morning. <laughs> the worst possible advice. Exactly. Sleep because in this movie, because they get you while you're asleep, he, 
it again, it's just one thing that adds to the unnerving feeling because normally, you know, you you're you're supposed to be you're supposed to be safe in your bed. You're supposed to be asleep. And and normally, if you're feeling that bogged down, that paranoid, that's the best thing you can do. Sleep, see how you feel in the morning. But under these circumstances, <laughs> the the best advice normally is going to get you killed. Yeah. I mean, so much of this movie does take place off screen, which is very, again, unnerving. Like Donald Sutherland, uh, Matthew Bennell, he runs into – he goes to the, his laundromat and mm-hmm. he talks to the, 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 the head guy and he keep, he's saying, my wife, my wife is not my wife. And there's a great shot of her kind of standing off through a, in a doorway with like some like plastic sheeting sort of dangling and she's just sort of looking at him funny. And then the next time you see the husband, he's acting the way the wife is. Yeah. He's oh, like, oh she, no, my wife. She's, she's fine. good now. She's good. My wife's fine. And Donald Sutherland's like, what's going on? And this movie, real for a movie that's uh, two hours long, it really is uh, amazingly good at building that tension and sustaining it through all this time because it's really not. There's really not hardly any gore or even much of special effects. Really, there's a couple of scenes of the pod people transforming, but not a lot. It keeps that stuff mostly well, off screen. It, it's pretty much just one scene, and honestly, I uh, first time I saw this movie, I think I was thirteen, mm. and that that scene, the one scene that we get of of actually seeing the pods birth these beings, and then watching them start to take form as they start to duplicate the people who are sleeping, that scene freaked me out, and like <laughs> to the point that even though I immediately loved this movie, I would. I had a tendency to time, you know, say going to the bathroom or getting up to get a snack while that scene was going on <laughs> so that I wouldn't have to actually watch it again. And um, I had actually kind of forgotten that again until I rewatched it. And I'm rewatching going, part of what makes this so unnerving to watch is, again, the sound that's going on. And there's no music. There, there's no dun-dun-dun, there's no building, you know, there's no violins. There's, right. Not, it's just the sounds of these pods opening up and these things taking form and these long, just slow shots that don't cut away as, as you just watch. You're just watching this unfold and it's and you, you want to get up and occasionally it just cuts back to Matthew right there asleep. And you just want to scream at him, for the love of God, Wake up and run, and he and he's he's not, <laughs> and it's just so ah. But yeah, you're right. It is pretty much just that one scene that's like that. Pretty much everything else is just you see someone they're one way. A couple scenes later, you see them again, and they're different. Yeah, they're different. Yeah, you mentioned the music, and I always forget to mention the music on these episodes, and people chastise me for it, and I, I won't hear because the film score for this movie is by a guy named Denny Zeitlin. Who uh, everyone? This was the only film score he did. The wasn't only it? film score he's ever done, and people loved it. Again, it is. It's really the he's got that the, the pulsing of the pods down. It, it is. It's a very spare score, but it is. It really. It's. It does exactly what horror mu- any music really, especially for a horror movie, should do. Is that it, it ramps up the fear and the 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 unease that just you're watching it without going overboard. He's like you said. There's no violins. All this crazy stuff. I mean. Um, one of the things I appreciate about movies – I love horror movies that take place in cities because mm. they that's atypical. I mean it's you know a little easier to make a horror movie out in the you know the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, down in the, the some wooded area. But in the middle of all these – you know, presumably there's all these people around. There's all these buildings. There's all this authority and you're wondering how can 
how can whatever's going on gain a foothold? And there is a great scene early on, uh, later on as the movie progresses where uh, Sutherland, Donald Sutherland's character, calls um, a friend that he has like in, in the government. And he, call, he picks up the phone and you hear a woman say, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm placed to call for you. Uh, uh, what, what, is, what is this? I'm blanking on his I, last name. Mr. Uh, Bernal. She goes, yeah, I'm, I'll place to call for you, Mr. Bernal. And he goes, I didn't give you my name. And you're like, oh, God, no. Oh, God. You know, it's like they're doomed. I know. And it, it, the, the whole – the paranoia in this, it really does ratchet up because by the end, it sort of fits somewhat the more classic paranoia template, which is that it seems like everyone is in on it except then, but except these few people who we've been following. But the first half is is almost kind of more unnerving for me because not only is like, well, there's people in on this thing and we don't know who they are, but even the people who aren't don't see it and they won't listen to you. You see that something's wrong and no one else sees it. Yeah. Now, this movie does feature uh, a cameo by Kevin McCarthy from the original film. And yep. he is running and running and yelling, they're here, they're chasing, you know, run, run, run. And he gets hit by a car. And is killed, and uh, that is one of the early scenes that something is wrong because Matthew looks at them, looks at people, and they're just standing looking at the dead body. There's nobody helping him or even seemingly reacting. Now, it is left to your imagination whether this film is a remake or actually a sequel. Because yeah. is Kevin McCarthy playing the same guy he played from the first film, and he's just been on the run all these decades? Or is it just – I always took it as it's just more of a nod to the original film than a literal sequel, but – I kind of think it can go either way because, yeah, it's a nod, but at the same time, you have the same you have the same actor doing what is one of the most famous moments from that first movie, and right. one of the last things he does in that first movie, which is he's flagging down cars trying to get people to listen to him, and nobody's listening. Yep. So, I mean, it it certainly doesn't have to be a sequel, but at the same time, you know, you're watching it, and and again, I, it's one of those little things that that puts you at unease because. Since uh, since when the opening credits begin and we're watching the pods land, we think we're watching the very start of this invasion. But you realize quickly some of these people are already in place. Right. You know, have already been replaced and duplicated at the time that the movie's picking up. And so you, you'll, you realize that, oh, this has already been going on. I don't even know how long. I'm just, we're just coming in as it's really ramping up. So it, it does leave that possibility that this – this could actually just be a sequel and, you know, he's from wherever the first one was set. He's he's just been running until he ended up in San Francisco. Yeah. What a terrifying but, thought. The guy been on the run for thir- two decades. It's terrifying. Yep. <laughs> and uh, there's a scene with a taxi driver played by Don Siegel, who was the director of Invasion of the, the original Invasion of the Body Snatcher. So he's in it, too. It's a little nice. He's another one who you feel as though that uh, Matthew and, uh, and Brooke Adams, uh, or Elizabeth, are going to make it out because they get, get, they get a ride to the airport. But you can hear Don Siegel's character sort of mutter into the, into the, the call box, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, no, no. This isn't going to work either. They're just they, – Everyone at that point, so many things are out to get them that they're 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 doomed, and it's just a matter of you know when they're going to get it, which is so it's very seventies, <laughs> you know. Uh, it is, but I got to tell you, this I, I I suppose we've kind of been building up to this, but I mean, I I, I kind of feel like I want to jump to the end and yeah. and talk about what happens at the end because 
And and I, and obviously, you know, we gave a warning at the beginning, complete spoilers. So I'm assuming that anyone listening knows the movie, but just on the off chance that they don't know the movie, but for whatever reason didn't feel the need to watch it and are okay listening to this anyways. What goes on at the end is the uh, basically the only one left that we've been following closely is Donald Sutherland as Matthew. And right, he, because eventually Leonard Nimoy and Jeff Goldblum's characters both get it. They yeah. both end up becoming pod. They they get it definitively. Nancy Cartwright kind of fades away, and she's been blending in with them. But it's kind of left like, did she get turned in? She was trying to trick them. We're not sure, right? Because um, they they established that if you act dispassionate, you act like a zombie, they won't get you. It's it's yeah. it's not like it's some sort of chemical thing that they can sense. It's more if you just act like one of them, then they'll leave you alone. So yeah, Nancy Nancy Cartwright just disappears. Yeah, so she she has vanished, and we don't know what happens to her. And we we see Elizabeth actually completely break down and get replaced. So we yeah, know she's it's, gone. It's, that's awful. Donald Sutherland's cry in that scene is really well done. He's so heartbroken when he reaches out for her body and it just crumbles into dust in his hands. Yeah, that is so heartbreaking. Yeah, so it so that has happened, and he's he has made a go at sort of doing some damage to this basically sort of big greenhouse warehouse setup where they've been, um, where they're now making and, the and, pods, yeah. and shipping out pods. Um, but you know, that was at night. And so it cuts to the next morning and he's, he's just in his office doing what we saw him do before at his job, but just doing it very slowly and very mechanically. And so, um, because, you know, it just leaps from him the night before to that, you just sort of go, okay, so he's, he's pretending. All right. Right. So he found a way to blend in. Right. Yeah. He's blending in. And then a little bit later, we see him walking, you know, through sort of a park public area. It's really just him. And Nancy Cartwright goes up to approach him. She says, Matthew. And she goes up to him and he points at her and he does this shriek, this alien shriek that we've heard these things do before. And you suddenly realize, no, he's he's gone. Yep. And he has now just fingered the only one who was left so far as we know. And, you know, at 13 years old, seeing that, it was definitely the first movie that I ever saw where the good guys lost. Yep. Yeah. It's, hey, guess what? End of the world, people. Roll yeah. credits. Yeah. And, and the thing is, even thinking about it now, there I can't think of very many movies where the good guys lost, you know, this unequivocally. <laughs> the, I mean, there are plenty of movies that, you know, where, say, your protagonist dies. But, you know, the protagonist dying is not the same thing as the protagonist losing, necessarily. Right, right. That's, true. Um, That's true. And there's plenty of movies, you know, say a lot, of, a lot of the better zombie movies end on a very sort of disheartened or melancholy note where, you know, maybe some of your heroes get away from wherever they were geographically. But you're like, right. there's only so much gas in that helicopter. Mm-hmm. Where are they going to land? But – in that situation, if you're really feeling optimistic, you can conceive of a scenario in your mind where maybe they'll be okay. There's nothing left at right. the end of this movie. There is no hope. And the hope just got gut punched out of you with that shriek. And then the movie basically does the equivalent of a mic drop and walks away because the credits start rolling and there's no music. Yep. <laughs> the, the the last sound in the movie is that shriek and Nancy Cartwright screaming no and it just, it just goes to white credits on a black screen and no sound and no other sound and no music and you're just left there going oh yeah 
Yeah, yeah, because you know, because three seconds later, they're all going to grab Nancy Cartwright and turn her into a pod person. That's it. She's she's done. She's not getting away. Yeah, it is. It is an an amazing gut punch of an ending. And I read that in the lore of the movie that uh, they didn't tell her that's what Donald Sutherland was going to do. I, I don't know how much I believe that because what's the ending if that's not the ending? I mean, what, what, what's yeah. the ending? What's the ending of your movie if, it, if he's not a pod person? Then he, I mean, what are they? I mean, they would have had to have written another scene if, if he's not a pod person. So I don't, I, I feel like that's one of those apocryphal stories that just gets told. I don't uh, think I believe that. I, I have a feeling that that was perpetuated because of what happened with Alien, where she didn't know she was going to get sprayed with blood. Right, yeah. And her reaction to that was genuine. People just like surprising Veronica Cartwright. Yeah, apparently. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I have a... I, I have a distinct. Did I call her Nancy Cartwright at, at some point? When I think in, we both did. Rambles? Yeah, Veronica. I'm, Veronica. But Cartwright. it's Veronica Cartwright, but the character's Nancy. So that that's why. That's why, listeners. We're, Bart we're not. Simpson gets turned into a pod person. It's terrible. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, um, the ending does fit with the whole tone of just creeping. Things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And the movie really wouldn't. I mean, that is one of the the the, the strikes against the the fifties version is that you know it had a basically government mandated happy ending yeah uh, you know it was like oh no 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 you know i mean all this horrible stuff happens and at the very end uh kevin mccarthy runs into the it opens and ends with you know basically the government saying oh we're gonna come in and clean all this up and you're like okay yay america we're, <laughs> we're killing the commies oh i'm sorry not commies aliens uh, you know, this movie doesn't have that. This movie at this point, you know, America was much more in a much more cynical place, even though this was still after Star Wars. And it, you could have that ending. You could just say, no, 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 these aliens are have taken over. They're going to take over San Francisco. The movie, I mean, the, one of the scenes that it wraps up with is children being put on the school buses. And there's you hear over loudspeakers about people taking trips to Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. other cities, so you know this is spreading like you know, like a disease, you know, like the disease that it is. So yeah, it, it, this movie, it couldn't end any other way. It seems daring, and I'm sure it was, but it really—that's what makes it perfect—is that downer of an ending. It just wouldn't work if it had somehow Nancy again, Nancy again, Nancy. Yeah. If Ronda Carver had somehow gotten away and blown up San Francisco or something. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the inevitable ending that we always. Are as audiences are rooting against, and and ninety nine times out of a hundred, a movie will give us something other than the inevitable ending. You know, it'll give us some miraculous save. It'll give us you know some glimmer of hope, some something. And I think again, part of the reason this one hits so hard because the only other movie I could think of that like it tries for something this hard hitting, at least that I've seen. Um, did you ever see The Mist? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Oh, the Mist has. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the thing about the Mist ending though. Is that it just piles misery on misery on misery, and I actually think it it over it overdoes it. Right. It, it's like it's like one it's one shot too many. Um. And the but the reason I actually think that this movie does that sort of thing better is it actually you still have that one lingering thread of hope because you know as we said because we did not see Matthew get changed when. It jumps from night to day, and we just see him there. We assume he's still human. So you've still got that lingering thread of hope of, okay, everything's coming apart, and we don't see how we could possibly beat this. But this one guy, our hero that we've been following this movie, he's still okay, so we're still okay. Oh, God, no, he's not. Yep. So that's uh, why this one, I think, 
hits more effectively, even than, you know, compared to the mist, which is much heavier misery yes. in terms of what it actually deals to you. But it it's, again, that one's just misery on top of misery. This one is like, I know everything's going south, but our hero is still okay. No, he's not. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, it is very sad to think all the effort that he put into it and it was for nothing. I mean, the 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 the, the final shot of him before he's a pod person ends with you hear one of the pod people say he can't he can't stay awake forever. Yeah, and you're like, oh, you know, and then but you think, yeah, but he's the hero. He can, you know, because that's what makes him the hero is that he. Well, you think you know he can stay awake forever, or maybe he'll find somewhere to sleep that's far enough away from any of these pods that right. you know they they won't. They won't get him, or you know, maybe he can, you know, maybe he can lock himself in a meat cooler. Who uh, who the heck knows? If he can just find somewhere to sleep that he, that these things aren't around, maybe he'll still be okay. You know, all these things that you rationalize seeing him that next day and thinking he's still human until you realize he's not. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's. I mean, I've read some things about that. That this film is sort of. I mean, this film we're making it sound like a, a, a downer, and it is a heavy movie, but. It has a lot of laughs. I mean, there is a, it has a, it has a very good knowing sense of humor. There's a line right near the end, actually, where things are getting grimace, where uh, Matthew and Elizabeth have to stay awake, so they take quaaludes and uh, or not quaaludes, it's, uh, speed, speed. speed. No, quaaludes would do the opposite. Speed. Uh, <laughs> that's my knowledge of drugs. Uh, they take speed, and she says, uh, he says, uh, she says, how many, how, how many do you normally, how many are you supposed to take? And she says one, and he goes, take five. <laughs> And like yep. that, every time I've seen that with other people, that gets a huge laugh, even though they are facing the worst of the threat at that point. I mean, they are trapped in this building, but it always gets a big – because it, it feels like it's a bit of a sort of comment on the loosey-goosey hippie stuff of the 70s, especially in San Francisco, that it's – everybody's on drugs. And it's like, oh, yeah, I'll just take one. Well, I'll take five. You know, I'm like, yeah. okay, why not? No, and and th- there are some great funny moments. I mean, there's that, or the oh my god, the uh, the dog with a man's face. Oh, good uh, lord! Lest we forget, because there's there's this guy. Um, I guess he's supposed to be homeless. He's this sort of vagrant, like a, you know, plays yeah, like a, play, yeah, a plays his banjo in the park, guy, and he's yeah. got his boxer puppy, and the two of them are sleeping. And Donald Sutherland runs by, and he sees the, the pod right there, and he they can't stop, but he kicks the pod. Hoping that that'll stop it, and it that must have just messed it up somehow. So that what ends up getting duplicated is this dog with the with that guy's face on it. Yeah, playing we, with music played by Jerry Garcia of all things. Yeah, playing the banjo. Playing the banjo. Yeah, no, no less. But you, we see this thing running around in the street, and it's it's the craziest thing you've ever seen, and it's both unnerving and hilarious at the same it, time. It is the one move, the one moment where the movie kind of lets it rip a little, and it's just like, all right, let's just be ridiculous and have this crazy dog hybrid person, and that's what causes Elizabeth to freak out, of course, because how, how could you not? Yeah. You know, how could you not freak out when you're seeing a dog with a human head on it? You know, <laughs> just, yeah. yeah. And I mean, that's and that's sort of what makes it work because it, it is a it's a patently ridiculous moment. But because they use it for a story purpose, which is she sees that and screams and suddenly all the pop people around her realize, oh, she's still human. Yeah, because because she reacted emotionally to this thing. But yeah, it it is an insane moment, and yeah, even I, even as a kid, I was looking at that, going, "That's freaky," but that's kind of funny. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. nuts. Yeah, and like I mentioned, Nimoy is terrific in it. He's such he's so smarmy. Uh, it really is fun to see him in a different role. I mean, in the uh, the DVD has an audio commentary track by Philip uh, uh, Philip Kaufman, and he talks about that they gave Nimoy that role. 
partly for that reason, just to break him out of that Spock thing. Mm-hmm. And he's terrific in it. He's terrific. He's really oily. He seems to make, as you mentioned earlier, he's making complete sense. Uh, but he just in any other context, his advice would not be that bad. But but here, it's terrible. It's, it's terrible. It's advice. the worst advice ever. And and there's uh, one of the last things we get from him because he he of course gets turned and he's. Um, you know, giving a sedative to uh, to Matthew and and Elizabeth, talking a lot like Spock. Yeah, you know, quite, emotionless. Quite yeah, and and he he has this one great line that I just love because it it comes across as just the right amount of sinister, but not meaning to be. Which is Elizabeth just looks at him, and you know they're waiting for the sedatives to kick in, and she just goes, "I hate you," and he just says coldly, calmly, "We don't hate you." Yeah. Yep. And it's ju- it's just this thing of you realize they. They, there's no malice in what they're doing, but they're just – this is their life cycle. This yeah. is what they do. They, they they think they're helping humans basically. Yeah. They're just saying we're getting rid of all your pain, which is, again, a very Vulcan kind of thing. So it's that much more disturbing coming from Mr. Spock. You know, This is horrible. <laughs> I mean I, I, I'm sure Leonard Nimoy seemed like he had a very wonderful life filled with a lot of joy and happiness. But I, I do wonder what he else was capable of when you see him because he's he's terrific in this movie. He said, as is everybody. They, I mean, Brooke Adams never really kind of got all that big after this movie, but she's great in it. She's she's beautiful. She's very uh, she's smart. I mean, you believe her and Sutherland as a couple. Uh, Goldblum and and uh, and Veronica Cartwright are a perfect couple. I completely buy them. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just this movie is cast very well. It's it's really to me, it's virtually a flawless movie from beginning to end, and it is remains to me just it, every time I watch, I'm like, oh, this just works really well, and it it's still scary and creepy and weird, and it just doesn't lose any of its power. I mean, it, you mentioned about in terms of downer endings. To me, the the closest you can come is like Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes has a downer ending, but it fits with the rest of the movie, and I think that's I, I, an invasion of the body centuries is of a caliber, I'd say, of the original plan of that Planet of the Apes movie. Oh yeah, I, I would absolutely say that. But I mean, even that Planet of the Apes movie, that's that's a downer of an ending. But you you know, the world as we knew it ended, but humans are still around. Maybe the Ape Society isn't that bad. It's mm-hmm. one of those things you stop and think of and go. We did it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Maybe we deserved it. I mean, it's still it's still a gut punch of a moment if you if pop culture didn't already wreck it for you. But um, you know, even that, there's still this vague sense of hope, which the sequel completely botched. I I hate Beneath the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> um, but you know, this one again is just that that yanking away of the you know. You're sort of standing on this very flimsy bit of hope, and it just gets yanked out from under your feet. Yeah, yeah. Uh, said it's it's a terrific movie, and for anybody who hasn't seen it, I hope you're not listening to this, but uh, <laughs> go see it. It's great, and it's it's a pretty durable story. I mean, they they remade it again in the '90s as uh, called Invade, just uh, Body Snatchers. Body Snatchers, yeah. Which I don't think is too bad. Uh, it's not great, but it's not too bad. And then they did the one with Nicole Kidman, Invasion, which I didn't think was very, very good at all. And that one does have Veronica Cartwright in it. Um, but like I said, you know, out of a, out of a fairly silly sci-fi story, which is, of course, based on a book, uh, you've gotten four movies out of it. Three of them, two bona fide classics, one pretty good. That's a, that's a pretty good track yeah. record, you know? It's a, and, I, and not to mention just an enduring concept. I mean, how many... TV shows, either as a pastiche or just as a general concept, have ripped this off. Yeah, the whole pod. Yeah, the whole pod thing. They even they even pirated on Mystery Science Theater where there were pods, and and uh, when one of the bots 
one of the bots, uh, his pod identity gets revealed. He does the shriek. Crow does the big <laughs> shriek when Mike Mike reveals that. He goes like, ah! So it's, that's made its way into the culture that, that unhuman shriek is the, the code for a pod person. Which terrible. actually, again, I, I, I almost forgot. I was going to mention it earlier, but I didn't want to jump into um, – you know, talking about the ending too soon. That shriek, um, like the first time you can see somebody running in the background, which is maybe 10 minutes into the movie, and Elizabeth is, she's walking to her work, and you see somebody, you know, run across the street and run down the sidewalk sort of away from her. You can hear that shriek in the background. It's kind of covered up by a, by like a church bell, but you hear that shriek for the first time in that movie 10 minutes in, and it and it recurs at a number of, points across the movie well ahead of you know most of the city having been take o- taken over i know you know what i don't know if i've ever noticed that i'll have to listen i'm sure i have i'll have to look at it again though because yeah there is a the, the sound design as we mentioned by ben bird is terrific and uh very well layered and there's lots of little things to notice so yeah it's it's just it's a movie that works from beginning to end and the whole way and it just holds up incredibly well and it, it it's nice to know that uh, people have noticed that it's good because i think it has like a 95 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, people realize like how good it is. Yeah, and I, I, I think it's generally accepted that this is car- that this stands as the best version of this story. Yeah, and 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 I just you know as classic as the fifties one is that that I think the the thing with the fifty ones the fifties one has not aged as well as as this has because this despite you know just the anachronisms you know like rotary telephones etc. Aside from that is really kind of timeless in the mm-hmm. way that it's told and the way that the performances are and everything else. It really does hold. I mean, I love that this movie is older than I am. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, it's not like this is a movie of my time and I'm just nostalgic about it. I mean, I think this, this holds up like gangbusters. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a terrific movie. And um, I'm very glad that we got a chance to talk about it. Cause it's, it's, it's a great, I, I like horror movies. I don't like bad horror movies, although a lot of most people don't, but when something is like a really good cross section of sci-fi and horror and it really works well, it's just so satisfying. And for a movie that's, that's kind of, uh, you know, kind of grim, I never get tired of watching it for whatever reason. So it, it holds up really, really well. Yeah, it definitely does. So uh, that's going to do it for our talk about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Nathaniel, thank you for doing the show, man. Uh, Where can people find you on the Internet? Mostly people can find me under Council of Geeks. Uh, The main things for that, there's a a Twitter account, Council of Geeks at Twitter. Um, There is the podcast, um, Council of Geeks podcast, available on iTunes and Stitcher, which is also home to 90s Comics Retrial. Mostly, though, in terms of just volume of stuff, you can find me on YouTube. Again, the channel for that is Council of Geeks. Awesome stuff. Awesome. So, again, thank you so much for doing the show, Nathaniel. I appreciate it, and I, uh, I hope that you can get your anger under control and not need to threaten me again to about coming on the show you know, regarding Ghostbusters. Well, we'll, we'll see how things stand. I think, I think we're okay for right now, but uh, I, I know where you live. All right, fair enough. I don't want to box you in. I don't want to, you know, let me get do anything you're not comfortable doing. So uh, anyway, again, Nathaniel, thanks for doing the show. I hope everybody enjoyed uh, us talking about Invasion of the Body Centers. I'm going to ask you to stay tuned because on the other side of these commercial messages, we're going to have some listener feedback. Woo!
happening. In fact, I think we should record a promo about all the changes to the Fire & Water Podcast Network happening this year. What do you think, Rob? That's a great idea. We can mention the new folks joining the network and all the shows. I can talk about how we'll continue with our Aquaman and Firestorm show. And I want to be sure to plug my movie show, The Film and Water Podcast. What about you, Ryan? Oh, I think we should definitely record a promo. I'll mention how the Secret Origins podcast is joining the Fire and Water Network. And then I'll introduce my newly relaunched shows, Give Me Those Star Wars and Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. Sound good to you, Chris? Absolutely. I'll mention the show I record with my lovely wife, Cindy, Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. We should probably also mention the Power Records podcast Rob and I do, too. What about you, Siskoid? Well, sure. I can talk about my ensemble show, the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics podcast, and my new upcoming shows about the DC Comics crossover event, Invasion, and yes, oh, hot move. Shag, you think we should mention Hero Points, the most occasional DC Heroes role-playing podcast? Sure, why not? And I can talk about Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe, and mention my new upcoming show, Justice League International, Wahaha podcast. Now, here's what I'm thinking. When we record, I'm fine being the first person talking. I can explain all the changes to the Wait network. a minute, wait a minute, wait. Why do you get to start the promo? I'm just as much of a part of this as you are. It was my idea to create the Fire and Water podcast back in 2011. I should start off this promo. I kind of think it should be one of the new voices who kick off the promo. It'll shock the listener into attention if it's not Rob or Shag. Cindy and I make up two people in the network. Plus, you know, ladies first. So we should be the first people talking on the promo. Ben voyons donc. You have what? got uh, what? to. We French cannot be the language of the Firewater Network. Enough! Stop it. You're like boys with toys. Let's just make this simple. We can tell the folks at home the Fire and Water Podcast Network is growing in 2016. Several new shows are joining the network. We'll have a new dedicated website, a Twitter account, and Facebook page. And folks will be able to subscribe to each individual show or all of them. See, now was that so hard? Fire and Water Podcast Network. Available soon through iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and fireandwaterpodcast.com. Seriously, Shag, you had to get the last word, didn't you? Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hey, everyone. It's time for listener feedback, so let's get started. We have one leftover email regarding episode 19, which was the Star Wars episode. We got that from Jeff Nettleton, so I wanted to cover that here. Uh, Jeff says, I greatly enjoyed your talk with Michael Bailey discussing the movie. Star Wars is one of those, exper- one of those experiences for me. Uh, the, the pump was primed long before, long before I got to see it. I remember seeing the teaser trailer before some other film, possibly one of the Pink Panther movies, and wondering what the heck this was. The trailer moved so fast it was hard to take everything in. I remember thinking it was something like a Ray Harryhausen film, like the Sinbad films, because that was my only frame of reference for fantasy adventure for young audiences. Jeff goes into a lot more detail about his history with Star Wars, all of it really cool. I really appreciate it. And then he ends with, uh, I always interpreted the Academy as more of a starship pilot training center, more akin to the Merchant Marine Academy rather than the Imperial Academy. Biggs had signed a board with what sounded like a commercial vessel rather than an Imperial one. 
This was further cemented in my mind by the fact that Biggs isn't wearing the Imperial uniform when he meets up with Luke on Tatooine, which I saw in the comics, read in the book, and saw in photos from the storybook. Uh, yeah, Jeff, that's uh, entirely possible. I think you're probably right. You have, I know you have experience in the military, so I think you're probably right about all that. Um, thanks for writing in. I'm sorry I didn't get it in in the uh, previous feedback episode. Uh, Chuck Coletta sent a link to a Donnie and Marie uh, Star Wars sketch where he says, any chance of adding this to the Film and Water Star Wars episodes? For my money, Star Wars is incomplete without Red Fox and Paul Lind. Uh, no, no, there isn't, Chuck. Uh, regarding uh, em- episode 20, which is uh, The Empire Strikes Back, Aaron Moss says, one in-story reason why they may have went for, uh, they being uh, Ben and Yoda, have went for Luke instead of Leia, is that Leia has a prin- is a princess and a senator and would be more noticeable if she went missing, whereas Luke was in the butt end of the galaxy so he could disappear for training without Vader and the Emperor noticing. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure I'm completely buying that, but we've all had to do a lot of George Lucas's work for him over the years, so it's entirely possible. Thank you, Aaron. Jeff Nettleton wrote in again regarding Empire. He mentions one comic-related point, or at least a theory of mine. I'm of the opinion that Lucas introduced Boba Fett based on the character of Valance in the Marvel's Star Wars comics. That character proved to be pretty popular in the comics, as it was introduced in issue 16 and would appear in further issues. There was more than a bit of Boba in Valance, though Lucas didn't use the self-loathing hatred for mechanicals. Uh, I have no proof, but it is rather convenient that Lucas introduced a bounty hunter with a past connection to Imperial history, alluded to at least, after one had appeared in the comics, but before the writing of Empire, or the later drafts. Uh, anyway, another fun episode. Uh, he also mentions, I didn't buy into Vader being Luke's father at the time, as it didn't make sense and contradicted too many things. It just seemed like a ruse to draw Luke to the dark side, especially after the Emperor's comment that Luke would be a powerful ally if he could be turned. Yeah, um, I always loved the character of Lance, called the Hunter. Uh, those are some of my favorite Star Wars comics, and I really like that character. So uh, that's an interesting idea that Boba Fett maybe morphed uh, out of that. So it certainly makes sense. Uh, regarding uh, Luke, Luke's parentage, yeah, that scene with the Emperor where, like, Vader mentions, you know, maybe he could be turned, and the, and the Emperor's like, yes, yes. Like, he's just thinking of it. You wouldn't think that if he was Vader's son, that would be that shocking an idea. But once again, I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of these Star Wars movies are made up as they go along, and we all had to sort of fill in the gaps uh, as a... Uh, as the storylines progressed. Chris writes, Chris Franklin writes in, great episode covering a great film, even with Shag on the show. Thank you, Chris. Uh, Tim Wallace says, I think it's pretty obvious to folks who know me or have listened to my appearances on Film and Water and Secret Origins, I walk to the beat of my own drum. So it should be no surprise that Empire is my least favorite of the original trilogy. Of the three, this always struck me as the dark, depressing one. That doesn't mean I don't love it, I just prefer the others. That said, I do have one very positive memory of Empire. For my birthday, it had to be 1981, my mom took me to the toy store and let me have a mini shopping spree. We didn't have a ton of money growing up, so my budget wasn't huge, but the gesture made it that much more special. I left with Bespin Luke, Hoth Han, Lando, Yoda, the twin pod cloud car vehicle, a knockoff glow-in-the-dark lightsaber, and the biggest smile on my face. That's a pretty nice shopping spree, Tim. That's some really cool stuff. I love that you bought the Twin Pod Cloud Car Vehicle. I guess there was nothing else available. Um, <laughs> regarding, um, again, Empire Siskoid responds to Tim's comment. He says, Shag's enthusiasm, as usual, is infectious. Great guest. Now that's drumming to a different tune, Tim. Uh, he also mentions, Empire is indeed great, and the only one in the franchise I don't act all grumpy about having to watch if it comes up with other people. Zoom Yukonori says, thank you for a fun episode, and another thank you for not spoiling the surprise of Darth Vader being Luke's father. Oops. Uh, regarding episode 21, which was Return of the Jedi, Jeff Nettleton again. 
this was the really big one for me, apart from the sheer delight of the original. This was going to be the end game as I and I was going to see it on my terms. I was late in seeing Star Wars because movies were a luxury in my family. All my friends saw it well before I did. I saw Empire late too while on vacation. I had to satisfy myself with the novel and the Marvel adaptation. With Jedi, I was 16, had a job, and my own car. So I went to see it as soon as it came out, although I had the Marvel Super Special, the one that was pulled from the newsstand, and loved it. I didn't hate the Ewoks, but thought they were played a bit too cute and came across better in the novel. Had they been more like badgers and less like teddy bears, they would have gotten a pass. That's a terrifying thought because badgers are scary. But yeah, I think the Ewoks... There's nothing wrong with the Ewok concept. It's really the execution, but that's true of a lot of things, again, in the Star Wars universe. Uh, Siskoid uh, sort of echoes that comment where he says, I think my opinions were your own almost exactly. I like this film for Luke. I like the Jabba monster puppet. I like the Ewoks in concept, a tribal people who have enough home advantage to defeat the overconfident Empire, but not their cutesy comic relief execution, etc., etc. Uh, Chris mentions, the Ewoks never bothered me. I miss the Yub-Nub song. Yeah, I... I I think I mentioned in, in all the uh, Star Wars episodes that I watched the original uh, movie versions, the ones on DVD, even though they're not uh, like anthropomorphic or they're not the right aspect ratio or whatever. But I, I just I I think the uh, the additions and the special editions are just not worth sitting through. So uh, and I really do love that Yub Nub song. I miss it when I don't hear it. Uh, Zoom Yukinori says. Uh, regarding the ad that played at the end, he says, And Snice Noodles was his top billing in a Kenner toy advert with the famously misquoted Casablanca line? I think there is cause for another viable anthology movie pitch, gentlemen. It's like Matahari, but with a longer snoot. Tim Wallace, I love Jedi. I just rewatched them, got Blu-rays of the trilogy for Christmas. Even with the flaws of the special editions, the unnecessary expanded musical number, Jawa's Palace, the removal of the Ewok celebration, front of the Galactic Fourth of July, I still find myself grinning with pure unadulterated enjoyment. Is it a perfect film? Maybe not, but it's fun. Jabba's Palace, the Barge and the Sarlacc, fun. Nearly everything on Endor is, including the Ewoks, fun. I watched this from grinning and remember what it was like to see it for the first time as a kid. Fun. Uh, regarding The Force Awakens, Bradley Mann writes in, he says, Love Film and Water's coverage of this event. Great job, and thanks. Thank you, Bradley. Jose Rivera says, Speaking of Kylo Ren, he did something in the movie that really got me emotionally. He did something so deplorable, so inexcusable, that the more I think about it, the anger I get. He ruined Poe Dameron's jacket when he slashed Finn in the back. That was a nice jacket. It's kind of a big story beat. So yeah, I think you're right, Jose. Uh, David, just someone just called David, uh, wrote in to say, Enjoyed listening to the episode today. Thought you guys brought up a ton of great points. For myself, I've seen it twice, and I loved it. I was there in 77. I was four. I've got to say, I think TFA has replaced Jedi as my favorite of the films. I thought it was that good. That's amazing. I've never heard, I don't think I've heard anybody saying that Force Awakens is their favorite of the movie. That's amazing. And good for you, David, that you enjoyed it that much. I mean, I, I've, I've seen it four times now, and I've loved it each time. But, uh, wow, that, that's, a, that's an amazing experience. Uh, Siskoid writes in, a lot of things I agree with. You blew my mind a couple of times. Nice theories. And, hey, did you see the picture comparisons of Snoke's Scars and Vader's? The love Rob owes to Oscar Isaac, I owe to Adam Driver. So I was going to be on board with Kylo Ren no matter what, probably. Uh, Ryan, to my Ryan Daly's, sour opinions about the way Han dies makes me want to defend it, though. If you're looking for redemption stories, this is Han's. He's been running away from responsibility all his life, whether that's represented by Jabba or initially not wanting to throw in with the rebels or not committing to Leia or leaving his family. This is the moment where he chooses fatherly duty over space adventures, and it's clear in his face that, given the choice between killing his son and letting his son kill him, he can only do the latter. 
This is Han's most heroic moment, negotiating for his son's soul, even though it's a lost cause. This is where he is truest to Ben Jr., to Leia, and ultimately to himself. It beats any kinds of any kind of blaze of glory scenario we might think of. Uh, all that to say that your podcast may be more enthusiastic about the Four Awake Force Awakens, so it did its job. Thank you, Siskoid. Yeah, I, 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 you know, obviously listened to a bunch of podcasts about Force Awakens after it came out, and and I forget which one I listened to, but it said that uh, basically Han's story in this movie is the story he should have had in Jedi, um, which was, you know, that's the redemption story that they never get to do in Jedi, and uh, I think that's true. And um, you know, I have to say, I don't as much as I love seeing Han Solo again, I don't want to see old trilogy films with old Han, old Han. It just wouldn't be the same so i think it made sense in every conceivable way to bring him on for a swan song and then and then say goodbye so i think it was uh, the right way to go even though it still breaks my heart to know that hints all over uh episode 23 the year in movies jose rivera writes and he says the latest episode of the show talking about the 2015 slate of movies is awesome awesome but something you and cisco had mentioned about audiences got me thinking i saw krampus a few weeks ago and, and the audience got to me a lady two seats away from me had her phone light blinking every time she got a notification. There were the obligatory group of teens snuck into the movie, giving their commentary every five minutes. And worst of all, someone in the front brought a baby. Who brings a baby to a horror movie? He says, just wondering what some of your worst crowd experiences or your thoughts on movie-going etiquette. Uh, to me, movie-going etiquette's pretty easy. I mean, you can talk, but keep it quiet and occasional. And keep your effing phone in your pocket. That's it. Um... You have so many other places to whip out your phone. You don't need to do it in a movie, and it's just so rude to people, and I just don't understand it. Um, bad experiences, you know, I've had a bunch uh, many years ago. Well, not many, but like in 2005, I took my dad to see Peter Jackson's King Kong, and, you know, it's a three-hour movie, and there were these two girls that just talking through the whole thing at full blast. And it got so bad uh, that uh, I got up and, and found an usher. And when I brought the usher back, they quieted down. They waited for the usher to leave. And then they just went right back to talking. And I just thought it was just such a dick move, you know. Um, I don't, you know, see that many movies with my dad. And, like, there aren't that many movies that he wants to see that my mom doesn't. But that was one of them. And so I was like, I'll take you to this. And so it's like, to me, it's like a very, you know, I cherish those experiences. And when somebody goes out of their way to ruin it, I just think it's a, a horrible uh, I took my nephew to see Goldfinger a couple of months ago, and a guy a couple seats down from me just had his phone out through the whole thing. And I just don't, I just don't get why you're there. I, I, you know, you paid money to be there. Why are you paying money to sit and play with your phone when you can do that for free? Just, you know. And if the movie's that bad, if you go there to, you're like, boy, this movie's terrible. Get up and leave. Like I just, it, it just defies expectation, uh, explanation to me. So, um, yeah, it's a really jerk ass thing to do and it's, it's i don't run into it as much at, at the local theater because it's reserved seats and the tickets are more expensive and maybe that does weed some people out but uh yeah hateful eight was really kind of unfortunate and as i mentioned i think on the show i actually want to see it again partly because i really enjoy the movie and i would like to kind of reconsider it and i would love to go see it in a less ruined experience um so i don't know if i'll get around to it but i, I would like to try uh, regarding the episode that he himself was on, Siskoid mentions, I knew I'd confuse the Brit actors. Hugh Bonneville's in Paddington. Uh, end of the year scattered I was. And then Chris Franklin mentions, wow, you guys saw a lot of movies. Rob, I particularly envy you getting to see all those classic films you took in. I'm always saying we should go see that, and then we don't. Other than the Dracula double feature, which, yes, was a bit wrong-headed of a combo. Yeah, it sounded great on paper, and then you get there and you're like, this is a lot of stilted acting for two and a half hours, so... 
Siskoid uh, <laughs> uh, re- responded with, uh, personally, I've stopped going to the movies. I feel like I'm done. Oh, crap. The Hateful Eight is playing this week? Damn. Falling off the wagon already. Regarding episode 24, which is our Batman episode, Chris Franklin says, I have to admit, when Sydney told me you were doing the Batman 66 movie on Film and Water, my immediate response, as your power of records, Ed McMahon, was a somewhat jealous, with who? But then he told me, Grand- she, then she told me Dan Greenfield and was all right with the world. Dan is one of the great flyers of the Batman 66 flag, so it's only fitting he stopped by to talk about the movie. The Bruce Wayne fight scenes always jumped out at me as well. The fight in the villain's headquarters is my favorite bad fight, and it looks like Wes is doing a good chunk of it. Dan is right. This could have come from a James Bond film, or at the very least, one of the many Bond spoofs at the time. Uh, Jeff Nettleton writes in uh, regarding his history of the Batman, with the Batman TV show. He says, as a kid, I loved it and thought it was a great adventure movie, totally missing the jokes. Like you guys said, it's well-paced and exciting with plenty of action, most of which wasn't too far off from your typical kids' film of the era. Like you, I never really fell out of love with the film or TV series, which I saw well after the movie. Though I got tired of the constant, pow, bang, comics aren't just for kids articles that followed Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, plus the Burton film and others. In fact, on the day I moved into my dorm in my college year, in my freshman year of college, the movie came on in the dorm lounge TV, and my dad and I sat and watched for a while, laughing at the ridiculous scenes of Batman trying to get rid of the bomb. Later, some friends and I went to a screening of the film by a campus group, which was packed. How can you not love this film? It is a shame we never got to a sequel, especially after the Yvonne Craig joined the series. A Batgirl and Batman movie would have been great, even if Robin tagged along. Poor Bert. Uh, and then uh, regarding the series in general, we got an email from Gord Tolton, who sent this comment into Who's Who uh, when Shag and I discussed uh, our differing feelings on the Watchmen movie. He said, your discussion of Watchmen led me to believe that the pair of you might not agree on your views of the movie. Now, if only there were some kind of film and water podcast hosted on your site where the two of you could focus on this flick and have it out. Just saying. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to sit through Watchmen again just to review it for the show, but maybe. You never know, Gord, so who, who knows. Um, so that's uh, pretty much all the feedback. I get a lot of um, retweets and favorites over on the Twitter page, which is um, at Film and Water Pod, and I really do appreciate everybody that uh, keeps the conversation going over on Twitter. Uh, I should mention now, because we've made the announcement, that uh, the Fire and Water Podcast is going to is going to become the Fire and Water Podcast Network with a bunch of other shows coming aboard. It's going to be super fun, and that now has its own uh, Twitter feed, which is FW Podcast over on Twitter. So please follow that. If you want to send us an email, it's firewaterpodcast.net. And if you do talk about any of the Fire and Water, Film and Water, whatever shows on Twitter, please use the hashtag FW Podcast. So uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the Film and Water Podcast. I really appreciate Nathaniel for coming on to talk about Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I love that movie. I hope you enjoyed the show. So until next week, um, that's a wrap. Mike, you okay? Mike, are you all right? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. How about you? Well, we're okay, too. (laughs) They had us locked up. Yeah. Ah, you big lug. (laughs) All I can say is... Ah! Ah! I was kidding.